I know a few of you spoke with me after the sermon last week and uh, remarked just how frustrating James has been to, for you to read thus far, um, especially his statements last week regarding the poor and the, reach, uh, the, the, poor and the rich uh, and the way he speaks in such sweeping generalizations. Yeah, James is a very black and white writer. He seems to have uh, very little tolerance for gray. He's binary, he speaks in absolutes, he offers little to no qualifications, or he puts no disclaimers on any of his statements. Uh, It's all true. But what you have to realize is that what I've just described to you is uh, the, the fundamental characteristic of wisdom literature. If you remember, as I started the sermon series, I said James is kind of like a New Testament version of the Proverbs. A genre that is well known for this kind of, uh, um, this but not that sort of hyperbole. It overstates things to make a point. And James is doing the same thing. These sweeping generalizations are meant by him to be provocative. He's been called by some uh, a provocateur. He, He wants to get underneath your skin. I mean, if you're feeling that way, then he's, he's like accomplishing his purpose, really. He wants you to furrow your brow and raise your hand and say, yeah, yeah, but, and, and raise objections. Um, all of that because he wants to shake us out of our slumber and, and, and into the reality of God. So if you're frustrated, you just need to understand the context and the nature of the genre. But I, I would also like you to know that you're not alone. The, There's somebody who very famously was frustrated with the book of James in church history. Does anybody know who who I'm referring to? Anybody? Well, you do. Yeah, pastors know, right? (laughs) Martin Luther. Martin Luther had real issues with the letter of James. In fact, he calls it, in some of his writings, he calls it a straw epistle, kind of like a straw man. He says, it's a right strawy epistle compared to, say, the Gospel of John or Paul's writings in the, the Epistle to the Romans or the Epistle to Galatians. It's a strawy epistle, he said, because it lacks gospel character. Luther never taught that James wasn't part of the Bible. But in the year 1522, when Luther ends up translating from the Greek into a landmark moment in church history, he puts... He puts it in German. So he, when he translates his German New Testament in 1522, he does not include the book of James or the books of Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation in the main section of his Bible. He kind of attaches them to the end like an appendix of sorts. He doesn't even include it in the table of contents. And he says... Uh, because these books have questionable claims of their apostolic authorship. And specifically to James, he says, I do not count it among the chief books of the Bible, but I won't forbid people to, uh, to read it, in essence. Why was, James, why was Luther so troubled with James? What was his big deal? The answer is found in our passage today. Martin Luther was concerned that James denied the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
the very doctrine which Luther held most dear, the very doctrine that Brian Fry spoke of earlier in the service, that the basis of our standing with God, the basis of our being right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, the one crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, and not on the basis of the good works that we perform. What Luther was worried about is that the Reformation slogan, sola fide, faith alone, was being compromised and attacked by James in verses 14 through 26 in our passage this morning. So let's read it together and try to determine if Luther was justified in his concerns about justification. And we read, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister uh, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And so the scripture was fulfilled that says, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute, and here he's referring back to, is it Joshua chapter 6, the siege of the city of Jericho, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction. As, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord of the scriptures, give to us a clear understanding and knowledge of your word in order that we might be doers of this word and not merely hearers. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. There is the million-dollar question that's been asked down through the centuries of church history, and that question, simply put, is, does James contradict Paul? Are these two great apostles in opposition to one another? Do they teach a different doctrine of justification Uh, than the other. And at first glance, it certainly seems that they do. Listen for a moment to Paul in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where he writes, a man or woman is justified by faith apart from works. They are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then later in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says, God justifies the ungodly 
He doesn't justify the good people, the people who are doing the good works. God justifies the ungodly people. And then in the other really famous place where this is spoken about would be Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this whole by grace through faith pattern that is found throughout all of the scriptures is there so that it would keep us from boasting in our own good doings, uh, our, our moral um, good deeds, so to speak. But it's not from us, it's from the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord by grace through faith. It comes from the Lord entirely and certainly not from us. I mentioned a minute ago, sola fide, faith alone, one of the five solas so instrumental in the Protestant Reformation. Here's an uncomfortable truth, friends. Did you know that the only time in the Bible the words faith alone can be found (laughs) are here in verse 24, where it says that we are not justified by faith alone? That's very bad news if you're a Presbyterian pastor. (laughs) I mean, it makes it sound as though James is not merely an opponent of Paul, but he's an opponent of the entire Protestant Reformation. Close up the doors of our church and let's all go home. Uh, What do we say to this? Not surprisingly, I really don't believe that we have a conflict here. Paul and James are using the same language, but with different shades of meaning because they are addressing two very different situations. And if you'll allow me, I'm going to try to prove that to you by asking first two questions. What do Paul and James mean when they use the word works? And what do Paul and James mean when they use the word faith? What do they mean by works? What do they mean by faith? What does is, what is Paul, to begin with, what does Paul mean by works? If you are maybe new to the Bible or you're new to the Christian faith, one of the biggest personalities, maybe the biggest personality you'll find in the entire Bible is this guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Many of us, when we get a picture of Paul in our minds, we think of kind of a a small, intelligent Danny DeVito, (laughs) who's a very fiery character and he he gets upset uh, rather easily. Well, Paul ends up being the very first uh, missionary apostle to the Mediterranean world. He went primarily to people who are not Jewish like himself, people who are called, as we are called, uh, Gentiles. So he was the one who was responsible for taking the gospel to them. What infuriated Paul more than anything else in this life is when false Christian teachers would stand up and say that in order for Gentiles to be saved, not only do you have to make a profession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but you also need to, and, and they pull out their list, be circumcised, keep a kosher table, Keep the Sabbath. Follow the purity laws in the Torah. Uh, All of these different Jewish laws which would make you a fine upstanding individual. In other words, they needed to become Jews in order to be accepted as Christians. And that made Paul want to just pull his hair out of his head. Much of his ministry was spent battling against this idea. That's what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the works of the law. Um, he rarely speaks about works, but he talks about works of the law a lot. And usually they're peculiarly Jewish laws 
False teachers were saying you needed to follow in order to be saved. I wonder if you noticed, though, as we've read through James thus far, that when James talks about works, he seems to have a a different meaning in mind. When he's referring to works, he he doesn't refer to circumcision and Sabbath-keeping and whatever. I mean, most of the works that James writes about in this letter are about, you know, caring for the poor, being merciful to the poor who are in your midst, being hospitable to other people, and uh, doing works of costly sacrifice and love on behalf of other people. It's clear that, I mean, James never demands that Gentiles undergo circumcision or follow Torah, all of which were Paul's trigger points. So even though they were using the same words, works, they have different references. Now, with regard to this Father Abraham figure, both of them use Abraham as an illustration of justification, but they use him in different ways. What is Paul's point about Abraham in uh, Romans chapter 4? Paul's point is that Abraham was justified by faith long before he was ever circumcised. And so if you guys are saying that the Gentiles need to be circumcised in, in order to be in a right standing with God, well, Father Abraham wasn't when he was declared righteous. That was Paul's point. I think what James is getting at in this Abraham illustration, to put it simply, James James was putting his money where his mouth is. By nearly sacrificing Isaac, as God commanded in Genesis chapter 22, Uh, Abraham's putting his money where his mouth is, saying, I really believe that you will give me offspring. I really believe you will fulfill your your, your plans and purposes. So that original declaration of justification that takes place in Genesis chapter 15, that declaration is confirmed later on in Genesis chapter 22 in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. You might say that the initial declaration is, in a sense, completed by the, by the subsequent action. You, if you have the one and it's true, you must have the other. And vice versa. If you have the other, it's because you had the one. So according to James, this justification it, by works is really uh, a justification by faith that is a faith that's finally fulfilled, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. All right, on to the second question. What do Paul and James mean when they use the word faith? What do they mean by faith? As far as I can tell, James would not deny that faith saves. Faith saves. I'll tell you that right now. Faith saves. But what he would deny is that a particular kind of faith saves. And he tells us what that particular kind of faith is. He denies that dead faith saves. Dead faith doesn't save. And he gives two examples of what dead faith looks like. The first one, if you will read it with me in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and they enter into All Saints Presbyterian Church on Sunday morning, and they need food, and they need They need clothing. We say to them, God bless you. 
and we do not meet their physical material needs. Or we say, one of the things we often will say is, I'll pray for you. (laughs) If you don't want to do something, just say, I'll pray for you. It's kind of the way you close out a conversation. I'll pray for you. God bless you. Go in peace. If works of the law is what infuriated Paul, what infuriates James is religious, mealy mouth language with no action. He asked the question, what, what good, what good is that kind of faith? What good is the kind of faith that says, I will pray for you, go in peace, but it does nothing to meet the physical material need of another person? He says, it's worthless. It's worthless. This is, by the way, the second time in the letter that James has used an illustration or talked about the mistreatment of the poor I don't know if you recognize that. He said it twice in two chapters, which does suggest, doesn't it, that the mistreatment of the poor was a very real issue in these early Christian churches. I don't think anything has changed today, right? If somebody walked into our church and they needed food or clothing, we must be merciful. And there was actually a a very veiled threat a serious threat that was given at the end of, I think it was last week's uh, reading. It said, judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who is not merciful. The second illustration of a dead faith is found in verse 19. If we can read that now together. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good. You believe there is one God. There is one God. What does it, Can you think of a confession of faith or affirmation of faith that Jews would have used to articulate their belief in one God? Anybody? It, the Shema. The Shema, yeah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. So he's saying, great, you've got a perfectly good confession of faith in your bulletin this morning <laughs> that you say that you believe Excellent. But do you realize the demons also believe that? James is like, hey, you know the demons have been to the greatest seminary in the universe. (laughs) The demons were the ones who were in the throne room of heaven itself before they fell. The the demons went to the best divinity school imaginable. They know their stuff. Remember when Jesus would perform an exorcism, oftentimes right before he cast the demon out of somebody, the demon would say aloud something to the effect of, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Like they knew. They knew. They knew he was the Messiah. They had mental assent faith, but they didn't have love and trust. I dare say demons probably know more of the Bible than Presbyterian pastors do or Presbyterian parishioners. They know it very well. So when here, when James is saying, when he's talking about a faith that doesn't save, he's referring to a catechism kind of faith that is on the paper and not in the heart. And his point is, if all we have is mental assent faith, that faith will land us in hell with the demons Because they also believe it. They have that kind of faith. And then they go on, or he goes on, to use Rahab as an example of living faith. Rahab's the one who, 
She harbored the spies in the city of Jericho. She believed that God was coming in judgment upon that city. I mean, she harbored the spies presumably because she thought that their cause was just and believed that their God was real. So at a, a great personal sacrifice and risk and danger, she, if she had been caught with the spies, she would have certainly lost her life. But hers was a faith that acted. And then you go on to the faith of Abraham, the man who trusted God so much he was willing to let his son go. If you're going to write down one quote from the sermon today, and it's okay if you don't take notes, but if you are a note taker and you want to write down one quote, uh, this is what it would be. This is what I suggest. We believe in something only to the degree that we are prepared to act on it. That's the acid test of faith. You believe in something only to the degree that you are willing to put your neck on the line for it and put all your eggs in that basket and risk yourself. James' point is that if a person says they have faith but their faith doesn't act, that faith won't save because that faith is bogus. There is no such thing as non-acting faith. That faith won't justify because it's a sham faith. It's a bogus faith. It's a dead faith. Paul and James would agree on that point entirely. And therefore, I don't think the Protestant Reformation was a big joke. Because here it is. James is telling us what he meant by faith alone. A faith that is alone. A faith that does not express itself in love and good deeds. That is a faith that is good for nothing. And that faith won't be saving anyone. Paul and James, Martin Luther and John Calvin, whomever else you want to add to that list. They all agree. A faith that is alone is no justifying faith at all. Well, to wrap things up, let's consider a few implications of this for us. A few so what's. So what? First, what James is doing here is he's trying to prod us, the reader, into asking, like really asking the question, do I have saving faith? He is trying to prod us into analyzing whether or not our faith is, is dead or is it real. Um, when I picture James in this section of his letter, I, I can see him as sort of the uh, firebrand preacher kind of loud thumping on the sermon guy who um, he's sweating from head to toe and he's got his handkerchief out and he's wiping his, his brow and I, I can hear him, maybe, maybe um, you can too, saying, I don't care if you were baptized as an infant. Hits the pulpit. <laughs> I don't care if you prayed the sinner's prayer at the age of six. I don't care if you walked down the aisle and prayed with the pastor at the end of the service. Is your faith alive now? I mean, you'd probably scream it in an uncomfortable way for us to hear. Is your faith alive now? What's the, what's the evidence that your faith is real? Show me your works, he would say. He would actually say, show me the money. <laughs> show me your works. Show me the money. Show me how it is that you take care of the poor. If we call ourselves Christians, we should be able to demonstrate by our bank accounts that we really, truly care for the poor in our midst and the poor around us. We, 
We should be able to demonstrate our faith by the way we care for the poor, or by the way we speak with our tongues, by the way we conduct and handle our relationships. You know, the reason that James, he digs the point in the way that he does is uh, he's hypersensitive. He doesn't want us to be self-deceived. Remember that at the end of chapter 1, how, how majorly concerned he is about the guy who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets his own reflection? He's hypersensitive to self-deception, most likely because who was more self-deceived than James himself? Right? This was the man who didn't even believe in his own brother as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And no doubt he believed in his own good, righteous works as a Jewish individual. Uh, he doesn't want us to fall into the same trap. So that would be the first so what. Secondly, <clears throat> I want to give to you a true or false question. Put you into seminary for a second here. True or false, good works are necessary for salvation. True or false? Good works are necessary for salvation. The answer is true. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes at me <laughs> and saying that I've denied the Reformation uh, and denied justification by faith alone, let me explain. Charles Spurgeon, the great 18th century, 19th century Baptist preacher, he used this illustration that I'm loosely following. He says, there's an apple tree planted within a great orchard outside. Is it necessary for that apple tree to produce fruit? If, daf- if after the winter has come and gone and the spring has arrived, if there are not buds on the tree, if there are no leaves and no blossoms and eventually no fruit, then we'd naturally conclude that that tree is diseased inside and its root system is dead. It will necessarily bear no fruit if it's dead. But what will happen if it's alive? It will necessarily bear fruit. Church, I want to make this abundantly clear. The only reason that we're ever saved is because we are in union to the one who is alive. Like that's the amen on Sunday morning is that Jesus is alive. He who is the root and the trunk and even the branch of it. His, if we are in union with Jesus Christ by faith then his sap runs through us and therefore we we will necessarily bear fruit because we're united to the one who's who's living forevermore. The new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us. It's the very spirit whom we sang about in our third song today. If we are united to Christ, we will bear fruit. We will bud, blossom, and grow. It's a certainty and so it's in that sense, are good works necessary for salvation? Absolutely, because they show that we are united to the living Savior. And if we don't have that fruit, then it shows that we are separated from the tree. What James is so concerned about is a Christian church where a number of its members are truly separated from the tree. Now, somebody may ask the question, um, how many good works are necessary for salvation? Uh, how do you know if you have enough works necessary for salvation? To that, to which I would reply, all the trees, trees in God's orchard are of various sizes and each have their own fruitfulness. 
God is the one who gives the increase. Sometimes that increase is tenfold. Sometimes it's 50-fold. Sometimes it's 200-fold. We're all going to bear differently. But none of the trees in God's orchard is dead. There's not a single dead one. Thirdly and finally, I guess I want to reiterate some of the good stuff that Brian Fry said earlier in the service, how our only hope is God moving toward us in mercy. Our only hope is that in Christ we don't get what we've earned or deserved. Uh, Did you know this about yourself? You don't keep the golden rule. (laughs) You don't do it. You may agree with the golden rule. You may like it and do it sometime. You don't keep the Ten Commandments, even though you admire them and know that they're good for you. If we got what we deserved, we'd be in hell this morning. God's salvation is pure gift. It's not our merit. Those of you who have Mormon friends, LDS friends, if you ever had theological conversations with them, you know that their favorite passage in all the Bible is James chapter 2. Have you ever, anybody experienced that before? They love to go to James chapter 2 because James chapter 2 shows that we need to be good worker bees and work, work, work for our salvation. They are zealous for good works so that they'll end up in the highest tier of heaven in the celestial kingdom Do you know why we should be zealous for good works? Um, Luther famously put it. He said, you know, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. (laughs) Why should we be zealous for good works? So that we can earn our way up the stairway to heaven? No, our works are never a case of wage. Our virtue is never wins us favor on the last day. But our good works are commanded because they're for the purpose of our neighbor, especially our poor neighbors, which is what James keeps coming back to again and again in his book. Funny story about Martin Luther, and I'll conclude with it. Maybe it's a legend or a fable, but this is the one that I uh, have heard Originally, if you didn't know, Luther started out as a, a career, for a career in law. That's what his father wanted him to do. And, and that's what smart, uh, educated men of his day uh, mostly did. But in the year 1505, Luther was traveling outside going somewhere or another. And he was caught in a horrific thunderstorm. And as the legend holds it, he, uh, he, he was terrified. The storm was so great, he said... I'm not going to survive this. It's, it's curtains for me. And in his terror, he, he calls out to his patron saint, Saint Anne. And he says, Saint Anne, save me. And if you save me, I'll become a monk. And she did. Not really. <laughs> and so he becomes an Augustinian monk. The most devout monk alive. He writes in his biography later, If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I certainly would have been entitled to it. It was only years later when he was reading through the gospel or through the epistle of Romans, he came to Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that is by faith. 
Up until that point in Luther's life, he thought that the righteousness of God was something that you could only obtain through your, your good monkish works. But the Holy Spirit at that moment opened his eyes and he saw that this, this righteousness God freely gives as a gift of his grace to people who do not have a righteousness of their own. It is the righteousness of Christ credited to the ungodly on the basis of faith. And so friends, have you received that righteousness? Yeah, I'm I'm doing the whole altar call thing this morning. (laughs) Have you received that righteousness? Uh, My prayer is that this binary, blunt instrument of God, James, would provoke you to honestly consider that question. Do I have saving faith? Is my faith alive or is my faith alone? Am I truly a Christian who has received the righteousness of God? We are justified by faith alone, absolutely, but never by a faith that is alone. Always by a faith that expresses itself in love and sacrifice. Any other faith is bogus and dead. Let it never be said of us. Amen.